Uh, Let me pray for us and then we will get going on Hebrews 7 and 8. Father, um, thank you. Thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for, um, man, this stuff's deep. Thank you for trusting us with the deep end. Um, Father, we pray uh, today, we, we come to you and we confess that a lot of it is hard and it doesn't make sense and we feel out of our depth. And so, um, God, I beg for you to make it very clear to us the things that you want us to walk out understanding because you know why we're here. And you know that every chair in this room is not here by chance, but rather because you have something to say. Will you speak loudly? Will you speak clearly? Um, Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that this entire book of the Bible is confusing as some of the semantics can be that it only is pointing to you and your son. And so thank you for that. Um, And we lift all of this up in your son's name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews. So last week, Becky, last week, Becky, hello, right? Yes, thank you, Becky. Basketball season is sadly over now, so you'll have to deal with me a little more often, I guess. But um, I just thank my friend Becky for stepping in and, and rocking this place with um, all that truth and the anchor and all the things, right, that um, God put on her heart to talk about. Well, listen, um, in the previous six chapters, can you believe, by the way, time out, pause, can you believe we're at chapter seven and eight? Guys, that's legit. You're still here. That's completely a thing. So do not, do not, just pat each other on the back and say, way to go. Right now, way to go. I'm proud of you. I'm so proud of you because I'm not joking. You know, I say all the time that I I go and I'm I'm so nerdy about studying because I don't want to mess up for you guys, you know? And so I'm reading all these smart guys' books, all these commentaries. They're giant, big, giant books, right? And I'm reading them. And you know what they kept calling these couple chapters that we're actually in right now? You know what they kept saying? They kept calling it the deep end. I'm like, ooh, I don't know that I'm ready to swim in the deep end. But we are, we are in the deep end. I thought about um, back when I was a teenager, like, I don't know, five years ago, something like that. See, I watch and I can see who laughs. Nikki, Amy, I'm watching you people. I used to teach swim lessons and um, God bless those precious little baby darlings. Um, It was a short-lived career because obviously it's kids and swimming and, you know, nobody should do that forever. But I remember that I would have these kiddos come and their parents would quiz me at the beginning. And again, I'm a teenager and, you know, my priorities were a little messed up, but they would always ask me like, okay, so like, this is what I want my kid to do, my four-year-old. I want him to be able to jump off the high dive and swim across the deep end. And basically, you know, I'm a mom now, so I really know what the whole objective was. You know what the objective is, right? It's like unassisted swimming. I don't want to have to deal with my kid. I want my kid to be in there confident, and I want to be able to chill on the chair over there, right? I get it now. But they would come to me with all these expectations and everything, and like, it's almost like I felt like they wanted me to just take that kiddo and just dunk them in the deep end and everything work. And it just never worked that way. Like we spent, and it was really funny because um, at the YMCA, they had like this policy where when you're teaching, the parents can't watch. Anybody, anybody been a part of that? Yeah. So let me just tell you why. Here's why. Because the little teenager that's teaching your kids is basically sitting on the steps with them for like the first five days, just trying to get them to put their face underwater. And the moms don't get it. And I'm a mom, I can say that, it's legal. They don't get it because they want their kid off the diving board and they want them across the pool because they want to sit in the chair. But it's got to start somewhere, 
right? And so when I, hear, when I kept hearing all these smart guys saying that we're in the deep end of Hebrews, I kept thinking, oh yeah, this is, this is what it is. So the first six chapters, we were hanging out on the steps, right, putting our face underwater, blowing bubbles. And now we are in the deep end. And we're in the deep end for another chapter or two, guys. But here's the beauty, is that we have been hanging out in the shallow end and we're ready, And so I know that this week was challenging. Well, okay, speak for myself. This week was challenging for me. Amen? But it's the deep end, guys. And and the beauty of it is the author of Hebrews recognizes that as well. So a lot of this repetition is because he's going, okay, hey, I gave you a little taste. I gave you a little taste of it a couple chapters ago, but now we're going all in. We are in the deep end. So... Today, we are in the deep end. Faces under, swimming underwater, jumping off the high dive. That's what this, this next couple weeks is going to be. But you can do it. Um, this seems important to say since Cindy Kendrick is in the room. Um, I, I, get, I get a little punchy late at night on Tuesday before Bible study, if anybody knows that. And I started telling everything this week was like, I kept coming up with these acronyms. It's like God kept going, okay, all these words. And so I just kept calling everything acronyms. And Cindy was pretty much threatening me on Facebook about, you better say what they all mean because I'm guessing what they all are. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that I promise this this is going somewhere. At the top of every page of my Bible study this week, you know what I wrote? Cindy knows. I wrote R-T-A. At the top of every page. I also wrote it at the top of every page of my notes. R-T-A. And you know what that was supposed to be doing to me? It was telling me to remember the audience. Remember the audience. Because I'm telling you, there were times when I'm reading this going, I do not know or care about McKisseldeck. I'm just done. And it was like God going, Chris, remember the audience. You know, in the beginning, when we first started this whole thing, we talked about the audience, didn't we? We talked about how the author of Hebrews knew exactly who he was writing this letter to. They were Jewish. Some of them were believers, but they had been practicing the Jewish faith for generations. They're Hebrews who make know Jesus as their saving, um, Savior. But then there's also the group of, of Hebrews that may have an intellectual understanding of who the person of Jesus Christ is. Because remember, we're like a generation removed from him being walking around on earth and doing his Jesus thing. Okay, So they, they've heard about him, they knew about him, and now they're trying to reconcile what they believe about him. And then there's also that other group right, of Hebrews that are probably just, they're just checking it out. Anybody sat next to people in church like that? Anybody ever been one of those people? Or could be now. I'm just here to figure this out. And so as I was going through this, and I hope that you will do the same as we walk through some sticky places, remember the audience, that the author knows what they're looking for, okay? He's a good writer. He knows what his audience is looking for, and that's who he's writing to, okay? But don't forget that you are also the audience, And we'll go there a little bit as we get closer to the end of today. But remember the audience, RTA. That was my, that was what I had to remember as I went through this whole thing. So um, if you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bibles to chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Hebrews. Listen, um, I said a minute ago, you know, remember the audience. And the Hebrew, the author of Hebrews knows exactly what these folks need. Now, when we're reading this, we may, we're like, oh, it looks, apparently they need a lot of information, a lot of detail, yeah? But I heard something this week, and I will not put it as eloquently as I heard it, and I, I'm pretty sure it was a tweet, so of course it was quite eloquent. 
But this is what I heard, and I thought of us. I thought of us, the audience of Hebrews. I thought of them, the audience of Hebrews. This is what I thought about. This was, this was in essence, what the, what the idea was. It was this. No matter where you are in your walk with Jesus, whether you know him intimately as your Savior, whether you know him intimately as your Savior as of an hour ago or as of 20 years ago, or whether you just kind of know who he is or you're just looking into him, you know what we all have in common? Every one of us, 100%. We need more Jesus. Amen? We all need more. And, and so sometimes when you read these things, you're like, I don't really need to know this and this and this. Okay, but what do we all need? We all need more Jesus. And so when you look at this, think about that the Hebrews author is trying to get through to his folks. Guys, I know what you're looking for even if you don't. I know what you need even if you don't. And that's us too. So with that said... That's my introduction to try to keep you awake for the chapter of McKizeldeck. Listen, I broke it into three parts. And again, they're acronyms for Cindy because I love her. The first was BHP. And what is it, Cindy? Better High Priest. Better High Priest. I couldn't write that over and over, so I kept writing BHP. The second is um, BNC. Better New Covenant. And then the last is we're going to ask ourselves that question, what are we looking for? Remembering our audience, we're also the audience. What are we looking for? Okay, so with that said, first we're going to look at chapter 7 of Hebrews. I'm not going to reread the whole chapter 7 of Hebrews. I'm so sorry if you wanted me to. I know that's disappointing. Mm. That was laughter, I heard. You did that in your homework. You went there. You went through a lot of it. So I'm going to try to move through it quickly because I think a lot of what I'm going to say is repetition. But what I also realize is that God keeps banging me over the head with a two by four because a lot of times repetition is what I need. Um, consider this. As you're walking into this first chapter here that we're covering, is the priestly order of Mechizeldeck. Remember, two weeks ago, we, we introduced him a little bit, right? And I gave you a little bit of background about him. Um, but here in this chapter, the author really kind of lays out this argument. An argument why... The order of Mechizeldek is more important than the order of the Levites. To us, that don't make much sense. We're like, okay, fine, whatever. That's not a big deal. To them, this might be the tipping point, okay? The author recognizes, guys, that this may mean nothing to us, but it's huge for them. He knows that these folks are walking into dangerous territory. They are all of a sudden, everything they've always believed is turned upside down because it doesn't seem to quite jive with what's comfortable. I'm comfortable doing this and making these sacrifices and following these laws and these rules and these specifications. And all of a sudden, you're telling me that that was not as important as this? You're kind of dissing everything I always, always bought into? And so they have huge issues here. They're facing persecution for changing over to this new idea of belief. Remember, Judaism is, is what these Hebrews, this is where these Hebrews come from. It's the premise of everything. I mean, Jesus was Jewish, guys. So it's the basis of everything. But yet it's different, completely different. And so this, he needs two whole chapters to help them understand why that it even matters. So it matters to them. It may not matter to you. So he breaks it out like this. Like the first 10 chapters, I mean, first 10 verses of chapter seven, it's like this historical argument. Chapter, I mean, um, excuse me, verse one through 10 is an historical argument where he's taking Mechizeldek and he's holding it up with Abraham and he's kind of explaining that whole thing. Which remember, Abraham 
is their father, right? He is the one that when they look at their faith, they point to Abraham. So he's going to show us how they interacted and what that meant. The second thing he's going to show us is this doctrinal argument. Doctrinal argument. Now, all that really means is he's basically going to now bring Christ into this thing. He's going to say Jesus Christ and then Aaron. That's like their, their main, you know, priest, right? Because he was the first one in the Levitical line of priesthood. Remember back with Moses? We'll go there in a minute. He's going to put those side to side and show them why, why there's this doctrinal argument that, that Mechizeldek, the line of priesthood, is more important. And then he's thirdly going to have this practical argument where he's going to say flat out Christ and a believer and what that means. Okay? So it's kind of three parts. So listen. Verses 1 through 10. These are things you covered in homework. These are things you covered in homework. But it's important to remember that Mechizeldek, especially if you weren't here two weeks ago, there's a few very important things about him that we need to make note of. One, in verse one, he was both what? King and priest. Both king and priest. Never in the Israelite genealogy does this happen. King David. King David, the man after God's own heart, was not a priest. Even King David was not both. He was both. Mechizeldek. Verse two goes on to explain what his name is. Now, isn't that interesting? In your homework, you covered that a little bit. Like, Oh, I always love, especially in the Old Testament, there's such, there's such richness and value in names. And the name of Mechizeldek, the first part is Melech, and it means king, and the second part is Sedek, and it means righteousness or justice. And so you have his physical name means king of righteousness. And then he's also the king of Salem. And if, if you know um, what Salem is really means is Jerusalem, and, and Jerusalem is then... Um, the Hebrew word for that is shalom. And who knows what shalom means? Peace. Not a coincidence that we have this king here, that he's the king of righteousness and justice, and he's also the king of peace. And the third thing is that there's family history in verse 3. He has no genealogy that puts him in the line of priesthood. Remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Levitical line of priesthood, and we're going to cover it more in a minute when we talk about the covenant deal. But this was valuable to them, okay? Because that made sense, right? You guys laugh at me because I'm like, charts, charts. I get so excited about charts. Who likes charts? Type A people, raise your hand. Okay, there you go. It makes sense, right? It's methodical. There's procedural. It makes sense. And so for them, that whole line of the priesthood, that makes sense. This guy didn't fit into that. He was before the whole line of the Levitical priesthood, okay? So he has no family history, no genealogy, nothing attributed to his lineage. And fourth, in verses four through 10, and this is where it gets weird for these folks. To us, we just read it and we're like, okay, whatever. Verses four through 10, he is superior. This, this, this is interesting because you look at verses four through 10 and it, and it starts out with, so see how great this man is to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a 10th of the spoils, And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham. What does that even mean, and why do we even care? Here's what that means. Think about this for a minute. Number one, you've got Abraham, the father of of the Jewish nation, okay? He He is the dude, okay? And he 
goes, and he, it's, it's pretty cool. It's actually in Genesis 4, and then um, it's also talked about again. David talks about it again in Psalm 110, but here's, here's the gist of it. Like, he goes out and battles these four kingdoms and, and he, because he's trying to save his nephew Lot, and he wins. Yay, he wins. Okay, so then he comes, and it's time to receive the spoils, and you know who else is there hanging out besides uh, Mechizeldech? Do you know who else? You know what other king was there? King of Sodom. Anybody remember King of Sodom? Some, some, some dark places that that king, but this is what I think is so cool. Okay, ready? So the king of Sodom comes up to Abraham and he's like, hey, you did it, way to go, way to go. Let me, you know, here, let me give you your spoils. And you know what Abraham says? No, 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 no. I want none of that. Instead, he looks at the king and high priest and he says, I'm gonna give you a 10th of everything because you are the priest of the God most high. McKizeldeck. I love that because you know what it, it shows us? It shows us that he is, he is, he's recognizing the superiority of this, of this priest, of this king priest. He's Abraham, guys. He's big time. And he recognizes his inferiority to him. He also, it, it's not about math or it's not about condemnation. And, and we get all hung up with, he gave 10% of his spoils and Listen, I want you to remember this. Here's what it is. It's not about the math. It's about his heart. It's about his heart. Abraham, right there in that moment, models for us, hey, I got this other guy that wants to give me accolades and praise me and, and give me spoils for having one, and, he, and that, that guy comes from a dark place, and I, don't know. I know that that's not right, but rather, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give first. To the Lord. And so that's the picture we get. So all of a sudden we got this McKesseldeck guy, and the reason why this comes up is because these folks, this matters to them. In Flower Mound, Texas, we just kind of go right over it, but to them, this was groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. Okay? That's who he was. Listen, verses 9 through 10 go into a little bit more detail about Mechizeldek and about the Levite priests. And I want you to hear this because this got confusing to me when he was talking about how, um, well, let me just read it. I'm gonna read verses nine and 10. And verse nine starts with this. It says, one might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham. What? I don't, okay, time out. Moving on to verse 10. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Mechizeldek met him. Listen, here's how we think about that. This might have been the moment for them where they got the aha, and here's why. Moses, well, Abraham, let me start with Abraham. So here we have Abraham, the father of the nation, and he is presenting tithes to this priest, this priest that just kind of seems to come out of nowhere, really. And ultimately, as we go down the line from Abraham, the first time we see this Levitical priesthood. Remember the 12 tribes? And I explained that the one tribe through Levi, those guys didn't actually have physical land. So they didn't have like a job to take care of land, but they produced the priests. The priests then offered um, sacrifices and were available to the people because they were right between God and people, a constant reoccurring constant sacrifice, a constant approaching of the throne of God, and it was never completely okay because they had to keep doing it over and over, right? Okay, so that's who Levi was. So that's who the Levites were. So that comes down through, through you look at Moses, okay, we have Abraham way up here, Mechizeldek, and then you have, all of a sudden you have Moses, and then Aaron is the first Levitical priest in that priesthood, and then these folks come through him. So in essence, when they look backwards, 
up at the genealogy. They're like, we're, we're down here with these Levitical priests. But really, they all came through Abraham, who was giving sacrifice, giving tithe to this other guy. And that would have blown their minds. Because remember, the Levitical priesthood, they only had one job. That was it. That's it. So when they hear this, this blows their minds, okay? It's important for him to go deep with them here because they need to understand that. He goes on to tell them, um, not only did Abraham acknowledge the authority of this priest and king, he gave these tithes, right, that we just talked about. He showed his heart. Ultimately, they were paying tithes to Melchizedek through their ancestor Abraham. And remembering, too, that the less is blessed through the priest of God most high. Abraham is less. So chapter 7, while you might have just skimmed right through it, would have had them hanging on the edge of their seat. Like, where do we go now? It's so interesting, isn't it, that he knows his audience so well. He knows his audience so well. Well, then he goes into this doctrinal argument, and that's where he takes Christ and Aaron. Okay, remember Aaron was the first Levitical priest, right? He was the brother of who? Moses. I know it's a lot. I get it. We should have had trio coffee here this morning. I get it, guys. But listen, he is taking this whole thing a step further. So now he's clarified to them what that priesthood, that Mechizeldek priesthood looked like. And now he's like, okay, here we go. Verse 11 through 25, now let's talk about Jesus. And they're really blown away. Melchizedek is now making it very clear that he is this symbolic, this shadow of Christ to come. Okay? He's a guy, just like all the other priests were guys. But he is this foreshadowing of who Jesus Christ will be, king and priest. What we learn about Jesus through Mechizeldek and the symbolism of who Mechizeldek is, we learn this. We learn that in verse 16 that he has this indestructible life. Indestructible life. How about the priests, the Levitical priests? Did they have indestructible lives? No. They died. And when they died, what happened? The next guy came along, right? And then the next guy. They're just people. Jesus has this indestructible life that he approaches the throne with once and for all, and it's eternal. Secondly, in verse 22... We see that when he's talking about um, the covenant that Jesus is coming to satisfy, we're going to get more into that in chapter 8, but remember this, that the old covenant was made obsolete because of man's weakness, okay? It wasn't because of God's plan was weak. Make sure you write that down because sometimes we get a little weirded out by that, right? I'm sure the people here did too because they're like, well, we had this whole plan, God. You got this thing. We got these priests and they do this thing and... And now that doesn't matter. And so what we need to understand is that this is not that, that, that all that stuff wasn't good because all those principles and all the things that God was, was, was commanding and demanding and hoping that we would live up to were always the same. Same God. But the problem is we are weak and we cannot satisfy any of it. And so in our weakness, God then brings a better covenant through Jesus. Okay, 
Third is he was sworn by oath. Did you see that? That was in verse 20. And we're reminded there that, you know, those folks that were part of the, the Levitical priesthood, they were just in because, because that's where they were born into, right? It wasn't like God had this oath that he spoke to each one of them. They were in. Remember when I said one of them died, the next one came up and the next one came up. This is different. This is very different. Verse 20, and it was not without an oath for those formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That's who Jesus was, is priest forever. Different, different. Listen, it's interesting when, when you then move into this, the last couple of verses, 26 and 27, now he's given a practical argument. And you know what I found interesting when I was reading, doing some research? I found this, you know, the word priest is never used one time in the Old Testament to refer to spiritual leaders. Never. Once the new covenant comes, once Jesus comes and satisfies it, that word priest is never used again to talk about man. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? We hear it a lot in the Old Testament. Remember we talked about prophets and priests and all that? Never again. Because this is it. This is the end. It's done. One high priest forever. He completed, he fulfilled, and he perfected. Verses 26 through 28, we can't miss this. I'm going to read this to you. It says in verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And then it goes into list all the things, right? All the things that our great high priest is. He's holy, he's innocent, he's unstained. He's separated from sinners and he's exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people because he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. Remember the guys? They have to sacrifice because of their sinfulness first, right? And then ours. And what does Jesus do? One time. One time for us. For every sin, past, present, future. It would rock their worlds, guys. This, this whole idea, while to us it may seem a little sterile and we're kind of like, okay, let's move on. To them, this turned everything upside down. Imagine, will you imagine those two groups of Hebrews that aren't believers yet? Will you imagine what this meant to them? I mean, this was that moment where they're like, hey, whoa, whoa, time out, wait, what? This does not make sense. And so it was critical that he goes deep. The principle for this section is this. Seems simple to us. The priesthood of Jesus is better than the priesthood of Aaron. But most importantly, don't go back. That's what he wants them to know. Remember who he's talking to here. He is telling them, don't go back. I know you're comfortable with that. Don't go back. And you guys are sitting here in Flower Mound, Texas going, God, I don't really care about any of that. I don't, you know, have to go to a priest. I don't have to do sacrifices. I don't have to do all that. So that, this is not really talking to me. May I, may I challenge you with something? Um, challenge, when I say challenge you, I mean challenge me. What are those things that we hold, we, we, we do for so long because we think we are in control and we do them and we do them and we do them. And then we see that Jesus has taken care of all of it. But you know what? It's comfortable and we kind of just go right back to it. 
You know, we just kind of go back. Oh, I'm going to be better if I um, if I go to church more often, or maybe better if I serve more. If I if I you know put a, a Christian fish on my car, or whatever. You know, that's cool. Jesus loves that. What are those things that we do over and over and over, and the whole time we have a great high priest saying, "Guys, it's done. Quit trying to work your way to God. I've done it. Don't go back." Don't go back. That's what he wants him to know. And so the next part, he goes into the whole covenant thing. And again, remember, the word covenant is meaningful to them. It's meaningful to us, but I think, it, at least for me, it, it can be confusing, and I get it confused with other things. And so as I was thinking through this, I thought, you know, what are, what are some ways for me to look at the difference between covenant? Well, then I thought about contract, and I talked to my friend Dustin Garner, and he, he taught on this, um, when he was talk, talking about marriage and covenant marriage, but I thought it was just a brilliant way to put side by side those ideas of what covenant is. When you think about a covenant, think about it in terms, in, in comparison to like a contract, like your cell phone contract, you know, that one, those things that matter, right? A contract means I'm going to take this for myself, okay? I'm going to get my part, I'm going to sign the thing, and I get, I get what I get when I sign the thing, Okay? A covenant says, I'm going to give to you. A contract says, I'm going to meet you halfway. Meaning my cell phone company, if you guys do what you're supposed to do, then I'll do what I'm supposed to do and I'll pay you and then everybody will be happy. A covenant says, I will give 100% regardless. No matter what happens on the other end. A contract says, I have to. When I sign that contract for my phone, I have to, do, I have to pay that stinking bill. A covenant says, I choose to. And a contract says, this thing only works if we both do our part, okay? But a covenant says, I'm committed because of who I am, not what you do. Hear God's voice when you hear that last sentence. I'm committed because of who I am, not what you do. Man's weakness, not weakness in God's plan, is why we need the new covenant. God still did all these things with the old covenant, but you know who messed it up? The guys. The guys did. You know, the old covenant came in Exodus 19 and 24 and 32, and you go back and read over that, skim it and scan it and whatever. Um, and God tells Moses, hey, Moses, here's what we're going to do. This is what's going to happen. Go tell the people. You know what the people were doing while Moses was up there getting the word from God? They were already screwing up, weren't they? It took two hot minutes and they were already messing it up, making idols and doing. And the beauty of, of the old covenant is when you read, and I have papers, tons of papers, over and over and over, God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because of who I am. And over and over and over and over, man messed it up. Not because God's plan was weak, because we were weak. And so instead of having Moses as the mediator of this great covenant, because that didn't work out, guys, in case you're wondering, didn't work out at all, we got to have this new covenant and we got to have a new mediator and he has to be the only one who can make it right. And that's Jesus. And so what's crazy is then you see, we move into Hebrews 8 and I'm not going to reread all that, but we had this awesome opportunity to read verses 8 through 12. And you know, that was from Jeremiah. Back in the other part of your Bible, the old part of your Bible, the New Old Testament. And you know who Jeremiah was? He was a prophet. 
And who were prophets? What did they do? They were God's mouthpiece, right? Priests were the ones that spoke on behalf of man to God. Prophets were the ones that go, hey guys, gather around. God's got something to say. He's gonna say it right now. So this guy, Jeremiah, he came and he said, hold up guys, this thing that you have with Moses, this covenant is not working. But good news, more good news. This new covenant's coming. And you know what I found so interesting is in the course of when he was teaching them this, um, when Jeremiah was teaching this, and just so you know, if you don't have that cross-reference, it's Jeremiah 31, 31 through 14. Here's what you need to know. When he was teaching them this, things were really terrible. Things were so terrible for God's people. They were bad. I thought about that, and I thought about how pain precedes the promise, doesn't it? Think about Jesus. You know, the pain of Jesus on the cross preceded the promise of him satisfying that atonement for us. This nation that he was talking to at the moment, Jeremiah, like remember back, we're going back in time for a sec because he's quoting them here. That nation that he was speaking to and trying to give them hope about this new covenant that was coming, their future seemed destroyed and he gave them a promise of restoration. Isn't it interesting that so often, and again, I'm speaking to Chris because none of you guys, I'm sure. Why, why am I only looking for the promise of restoration once it's already, there's already restoration? Like I'm like, okay, God, I will buy all into this whole promise, but I really, really need you to get my stuff figured out first. Wow. You know, I always think back to that. Um, this is going off completely off. But I always think back to the, when, when, when God parted the Red Sea and, and the priests all went down there. And you remember what they had to do before it was parted? They had to put their feet in it and they had to believe that he was going to do it. And that's what's happening here is you have Jeremiah talking to them in dire situation going, hang on guys, you got hope. There's hope. Okay. And so that's what he's quoting here. He's going, hey, remember that thing that Jeremiah quoted? And then just so you know, later there was another prophet and his name was Ezekiel. And he quoted, he said some stuff about this coming new covenant. It's this hope of what's to come. And then even crazier, there's this guy. Okay, guys, ready? There's this guy named Jesus. He was in the Bible. And in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28, he says this, ours. Hours before he went to the cross for you, he said this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, listen, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. New covenant. This is what all of it was pointing towards. All that Jeremiah stuff, all that Ezekiel stuff, all this stuff in Hebrews. The Hebrews author is going, guys, listen, it's here. And then Paul talks about it later, that we get to be the ministers of it. That we get to be the beneficiaries of this new covenant. And then we get to go out and do what? Go and tell people about it. Right? Listen, in the new covenant, there's a better high priest he sat at the right hand of God. You remember us talking about that a few weeks ago? He sat down, said, hmm, I'm going to sit. Priests never sit. Our priest sat because it was finished. And where did our priest sit? At the right hand of God. At the right hand of God. You know what that means? That means he is the co-reigning leader 
prince, king, priest. That's what that means. Anytime you see that, that right hand, that's why I got RHPs. I'm not the king. Let me clarify. That was, let me really clarify. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Better high priest, better place. He serves in heaven. Holy places set up by God alone, right? That's what we learned about where Jesus is now. He's not this guy that enters this thing and does it every so often and there's this procedure. He is there always sitting at the right hand for us. Somebody in our leader meeting said this and it just struck me to the bone. Isn't it humbling to know that as we stand and sit here now, he's sitting at the throne going, hey God, I got this girl. I got this girl, Kristen. She's so cool. Listen to me on behalf of her. Lord, I, I love Judy and Dodie and Dawn and Bambi. And God, I just, I love them so much. Listen to me on behalf of them. Wow, right? I mean, we, we just go through our lives and we just forget about it. We ignore it and we just don't even stop and think about. We have this, the great high priest sitting there talking about us by name to Father God. Crazy stuff. But that's what we have and lastly, he, he, he gives us a better promise with this new covenant, a better promise. This is the thing. He is superior. It's not about what we do, like the contract. It's about who he is. This covenant has nothing to do with you. Bless your heart. You dress cute. Your hair looks good. I'm sure you're super cool and you're going to have lunch and have great conversation. But he didn't do this because of who you are. He did it because of who he is. The new covenant is not because of the weaknesses of God, but rather the weaknesses of us. And we have to see that. We have to know that. And the beauty of when he lays this out and quotes that Jeremiah, you know what he reminds us too? That now this new covenant is internal. That old covenant was external. It was doing stuff, doing stuff, doing stuff. Internally, he puts God's word in my mind and in my heart. And if I know Jesus as my savior, he is like dwelling inside of me. I am now the temple of God. Crazy. Crazy. How could he love me that much? I am a mess. And the last thing is to be reminded that in verse 12, he says, he remembers our sins no more. He remembers our sins no more. I found a really interesting, you know, definition of that. He remembers our sins no more. We always say, forgive and forget, forgive and forget. And, and then everybody rolls their eyes and like, are you kidding me? You know what she did to me? I cannot forget that. But you know what? How about shift your thinking for a minute and think about it like this. Rather than the whole idea of forgive and forget, not forget, but rather see, acknowledge, and choose to forgive it. You know, I don't know, and this is the doctrine of Chris, so let's strike it if it's bad. But I don't believe that he necessarily forgets all the things, but I know that he doesn't hold it against me. Because, guys, sometimes there's value in remembering, right? Sometimes that's what strengthens your faith. Sometimes, as one of our friends in our group today said, is I look at how God has treated me in spite of all that I've done, and I look at others and realize I don't, I don't look at them the same way. I do hold it against them. Maybe forget isn't the word. Maybe the word is instead choose to forgive. That's who Jesus is. That's, that's what he does. And so he's laying it out to them and saying, guys, this is better. I'm just saying it's better. 
the principle for this section is, before we close, is that the new covenant is not a backup plan. The new covenant is not a backup plan. It dismisses man's weakness and replaces it with God's grace. It was not a backup plan. Don't go back. He is imploring them to realize that you can't go back to that. It's broken and it doesn't work and it's weak. And it's weak and broken and you thought it was perfect and it wasn't. The last thing I want to leave you with today is this. Um, I'm going to end this a little differently than I normally do, but I want you to think about this for a second. Remember what I said in the very beginning, my eloquent tweet. All of us are in different places. All of us are in different places with Jesus, but we all have one thing in common. The girl who studied the Bible for 20 years, the girl who's just bought a brand new one, we need more Jesus. And, and, you know, for me, I'm being completely honest with you. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, he's talking to non-believers. He wants these folks that are either new believers or non-believers, he wants them to understand, what does this even mean to me? And then I hear him say in his big God voice almost, remember the audience. And you are part of the audience. There is a reason that these words are here for us. What are you looking for? He knows what you're looking for even if you don't. He knows what we're looking for even when we don't. We need more Jesus. What does that even look like? What does it even look like? I don't even know how to say, God, what does that even look like? Here's what I thought about. And then, and then we're going to wrap up. Here's, here's, here's how it looks to me. we got to listen to him first. Listen to him first. When you study your Bible, don't just read it and then regurgitate something in there. And I'm, I'm guilty, guys. I promise you, I'm talking to me too. Meditate on God's word. Ask him. You know what I ask him all the time? I'm, I'm not kidding you. I think whenever I get to heaven someday, he is going to have like the list of Chris prayers and it, everybody in the whole heaven is going to crack up because they are the dumbest things. But I pray all the time, Lord, help me want to read this. Help me want to understand this because I just would rather go watch HGTV right now, God. I think he loves those prayers because it's honest, right? He wants me to not just read it and not just check a box. He wants us to meditate on it and listen. Here's the thing. We have him talking to us right here. People that say, I pray, but I just don't hear him say anything. I say, well, you're not looking because every promise you could ever need is right here. It's hard. It's hard. Listening's hard. I'm a talker. Listening's hard. You know what else? Let me suggest something else to you. This will blow your mind. When you're praying, are you ready? This is hard for Chris. When you're praying, ask him to speak to you. Don't just give him a laundry list. How about that? Listen. You know how he speaks to me? And I'm not going to be one of those people that's like, I got this God voice and he's talking. Okay, you know how he talks to me? Through you guys. Through music. Through nature. Through my kids. Through failures. Listen. Secondly, ignore the illusions of that we have a why that's required to be answered. Okay? Just forget that. In the Bible it says, be still and know that I am God. It does not say be still and know why. It's not in there. Not even in the message. Sometimes we got to release the illusion of why and just understand that we are not going to know. Third, Look where he dwells among us. 
Look where he dwells among us. That sounds really vague, and you're like, whatever, he's not here physically. Let me tell you, um, let me tell you what that means to me. Look where he dwells among us. Um, a lot of people in here are going through really hard stuff. And if you're not, you will. You're welcome. Glad you came. Um, sometimes we see him more clearly when it's dark, right? Because everything else doesn't matter anymore. And sometimes um, when we look to see where he dwells among us, here's what we see. You know what we see? This is what we see sometimes. Sometimes we see a friend get diagnosed with cancer and then 30 minutes later minister to a homeless guy. Sometimes we see that, you know, and I, I got to see that. God gave me that, not the gift of my friend's cancer because that's a bummer. But in the 30 minutes after she was diagnosed, she was loving on a homeless guy and bought him a Bible and shoes and asked him how she could pray for him. And you know what Chris did? Chris stood over in the corner and I was just angry and mad. And I wanted to go, hey, dude, she just got diagnosed with cancer. So back off. That's my heart. That was my heart. And so that moment made me go, oh, so he was there. So Jesus is totally like in that thing. Yeah, that's when he dwells among us. So don't fool yourself like Chris does into thinking he only dwells among us when we're singing worship songs or we're watching great speakers or we're hanging out with people that we love because he is in the yucky and he is on the street corner with a homeless guy and he is standing there speaking love and truth into your friend who just got bad news. That's, um, that's where he dwells. So look for it. He's there. We just miss it because we're Chris in the corner complaining. The fourth thing is this. Subject your plans to him. Subject your plans to him daily, hourly, momentarily, secondly. Is that a thing? Seconds? I don't know. Whatever. Listen, when you subject your plans to him, your vision changes. Your priorities shift. Then it's contagious. See, my friend who, who is so contagious, so contagious, shifted everything for me in that 30-minute moment of, of like watching this reality happen. Like that shifted my world. And that happens when you subject it to him and you say, God, take it. Take all the yucky. Take all the great and, and just do your thing. And, and he will rock it. He will. Blessings, not curses. He'll bring joy out of living. Okay, I'm going to do a weird thing. And my, my Becky and Mary already know. I just felt really heavy this week. Um, because I felt like we're looking for Jesus and we just, we don't even know it. I felt like, especially those of us who've done the Jesus thing for a while, we're looking for him and we don't know it. And so today I want to end this way. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to um, play a song. Because while I was preparing, this song came on and I thought, oh, that's it. That's lecture. We need to hear it. So there's going to be words on the screen. There's going to be a song playing. I invite you to spend the next six minutes quietly reading the words, listening to the music, praying to your God, and just asking him, where are you? Where can I look for you? How do I find you? Because you are the audience. You need to hear this. So do I. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us enough to give us your word and for coming to this earth. And, and, and we ask your forgiveness when we don't see you.
So God, will you come today? Will you show us what we're looking for? In Jesus' name.